Welcome to Flock Talk, a podcast of GCF North. Flock Talk exists to inform, encourage, and inspire. This is your host, Dave Farley, lead pastor of GCF North. This is season one, episode 10, and I'm joined today by Pastor Brett Sweet, lead pastor of GCF Central. I've known Brett for how many years, Brett? 17 years? That's probably a good guess. I met Brett... And Allie, when they were just friends, quote Which unquote, we were. F- friends with potential. This was this was back in oh the fall of oh five, when we first met, or was it spring of oh spring of oh six somewhere around? It was there. probably the fall of oh five, maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, Brett was a student at Eastern Washington University, and I was a new pastor at GCF, uh, and now here we are. Look how Seven, far we've 17 come. years later. So, Brett, where are you from? I grew up in Chewila, Washington. So, and, and what were you known for at, at Chewila? Golf? He, oh, he, it probably depends he, who you're he, talking he was, to. He was that guy that was the good golfer? Well, there were several good golfers at Chewila at that time. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. I was, I guess I was voted most likely to live in Chewila his whole life when I was a senior in high school. So maybe that's something. Is that is that good, bad? I, I took it as a good thing. Yeah. I loved hunting and fishing up there and playing golf and my family was there and loved the outdoors and I, I didn't take any offense. I had school spirit. I was a Chewila cougar. Yeah. So Go Cougs. Go Cougs. So you're married, one wife, four children. Yes. Age of your kids? Uh, one that a daughter Isla, almost twelve or almost thirteen. Uh, two twin girls, Ren and Gemma, both ten, and a little boy named Matthias who will turn seven this summer. So, that's very good. And you have been the lead pastor of GCF Central for how long? Uh, July first will be five years. Wow. How are things going at GCF Central? I think well. I'm always I'm I trust my own judgment less than almost anybody else's, but it seems to me things are going well. People are even more optimistic and more encouraged than I am. So I would say it things are going well. Uh, it, it's ministry is always challenging everywhere, and ministry is always encouraging everywhere in some way or another. So I, I'm more encouraged than discouraged for sure, and the people. At GCF Central are wonderful, and I love being one of them. So uh, GCF has been around for um, quite a while, 21, 22 years, I think. Um, and there are a lot of things unique about GCF, but I think the most important thing to think about when it comes to uniqueness is our theological distinctives. Um, these are the things that make GCF unique, not better, mm-hmm. but unique or different. And every church has theological distinctives. We want to make sure that those are clear for anyone who's considering becoming a part of us. Um, and I, I want to talk to Brett about our theological distinctives. Um, and I should probably quiz him right now and mm. ask him if he can list all of them without looking. What are they, yeah. Brett? Well, there's seven, is what you're just talking before we came on air. Um, the first one is our commitment to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The second one would be gospel centrality. We're committed to gospel centrality. 
third would be we're committed to Reformed theology. Fourth, I think, so I might get the order wrong here, we're committed to uh, complementarianism or complementarity, which is men's and women's roles, which we'll talk about. Uh, fifth, the real mouthful is we're committed to continuationist pneumatology. Sixth, we're committed to the local church, what that means. And seventh, we're committed to elder governance. Okay, so those are the seven things that uh, make GCF distinct. Uh, although we are not alone in these convictions. There nope. are many, many, many churches yep. uh, that would, would affirm that these seven things are really important to hold on to. Let's talk about each one. Uh, the first one is we are committed to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. What does that mean, Brett? Well, it's in it functions as the most important one, ultimately, because if God's Word is not God's Word, then... There is no authority in the Bible, and there's no reason to believe anything that's written in it. But all of the other theological distinctives, and indeed, I, I would say our whole statement of faith, flows out of the fact that Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. And if it comes from God, it has to be without error. And if it's without error, it has to be binding in its authority. Um, and if God has chosen to speak, then we have what we need from what he tells us. So the authority being that whatever God says, that settles the debate. It's not, we don't pull out some other uh, philosophy or psychology or anything like that and, and weigh them as if they have equal value. The scripture, what scripture says it means, and we have to, we have to rest there. And then sufficiency being that we don't need uh, anything else to be conformed to the image of Christ uh, and to live lives of godliness. That's not to say other things aren't helpful, other books aren't helpful, but the Bible is enough. If that's all we had was the Bible, um, we, we have more than we need uh, to know God and, and obey him and be his people and be saved by him. Why, why is the authority of Scripture such an important issue these days? It's always been important. It's always important. It's always been yeah. important. Yeah. But increasingly, I'm convinced that it's really, really important in our cultural moment. And why? Yeah, it's always important. I, I mean, that's the reason is, is we know nothing unless God reveals things to us. And God has revealed himself in Scripture. Now, if for some reason there is... If the authority of Scripture is not that, precisely that, it's not authoritative, then we are tossed and blown by every winds of doctrine. And that's what we see, sadly, among Christians, and I'll put those in air quotes, because the culture, our culture, is increasingly anti-Christian. It's increasingly anti-authoritative. And, and therefore, the winds of Scripture are directly opposed to our culture. And so the pressure is great. Uh, the pressure to hold to what the Bible says about anything is not is no longer easy. It, you are not going with the flow by saying you believe the Bible and, and that we're going to follow the Bible. And so uh, I obviously that's always that's all of human history, but it's particularly public and the stakes seem higher in the United States than they probably ever have 
over that particular issue. Yeah, the, the Bible is very, very clear on a couple of key cultural issues that make mm-hmm. Christians very unpopular. Mm-hmm. For instance, gender and sexuality. Yep. Um, homosexuality. Um, the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Yep. Mm-hmm. The Bible is very clear that in marriage, men are called to lead and mm-hmm. wives are called to follow. And the Bible is very clear that in the church, only men should be elders. And saying those things is going to increasingly get us into trouble with culture mm-hmm. and going to bring persecution. So I'm convinced if we're not really, really clear on the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, uh, we will cave when the pressure mounts. And the pressure is mounting mm-hmm. every day Every day it mounts. Uh, and so it, it is significant that this is the first distinctive yep. because everything else really flows out of this first distinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, next distinctive is uh, gospel centrality. Now, uh, how, how do people, you think, misunderstand this particular distinctive? That's a good question. I think that probably it's misunderstood by Christians, sincere lovers of Jesus, by thinking that if there is good news somewhere in a sermon or in uh, a book, then that's gospel-centered. But that's gospel-included or gospel-believing, but it's not necessarily gospel-centered. So gospel-centeredness, we're saying that everything, we want everything, and obviously we don't do this perfectly, but our goal is for everything to flow out of who Jesus is, what he's done, fact that we're saved by grace alone, by believing in him, that's, that's what we mean by gospel-centeredness, and that that can impact literally every part of our lives as Christians and as a church corporately and collectively. So a church that does altar calls, are they gospel-centered? Possibly. Possibly. But not necessarily. Okay. Um, if, if someone is constantly talking about the good news of the sovereignty of God, is that gospel centrality? Not, uh, we'll talk about the sovereignty of God in a minute, and that is good news, but that is not necessarily gospel-centeredness. Um, is it true that Jesus is on every page of Scripture? What do you mean by is Jesus <laughs> on every page? If we're looking for his name, of course not. Of course not. If we're... Um, I'll ask the question this way. Is it possible to preach the gospel from every page of Scripture? Yes, it How? is. But if he's, if he's not mentioned... Uh, so the, the book of Esther mm-hmm. never mentions Jesus. Oh, yeah. So, I've preached through Esther, so, so you're putting so, me on the spot here. So uh, how can someone be gospel-centered from the book of Esther? Well, we could say that Esther as a whole is a, we're in the we're in this tension in the book of Esther of how are God's people going to survive? How are they going to make it with a hostile culture trying to annihilate them literally? And what's the solution? God intervenes. He acts, even though his name is not even in the Bible, in, in, in Esther, excuse me, God's not even mentioned. What happens? We see somebody who's risen up at the right time, willing to offer herself potentially to die for well, her people. Well, first she intercedes on behalf she of her does. people. She does, yeah. Who else does that, Brett? Jesus does Jesus that, Dave. Jesus does that. Yeah. And, and we see, yeah, I mean... And, and we see God's people spared through the acts of, of, of Esther, of Queen Esther, in this hostile culture. Um, 
we see judgment done on God's enemies, which is an unpopular aspect of the good news of Jesus. Um, and we see that God is just and, and gracious to people who weren't necessarily seeking him. So you and I both agree that this mm-hmm. distinctive means that we can, in fact, preach Christ from all of Scripture. The whole Bible tells one story about Jesus from beginning to end. Um, not every part of the Bible no. is equally clear no. on this issue, but we believe that that Christ is uh, on every page of Scripture in shadow or type mm-hmm. or prophetic fulfillment, et cetera, et cetera. And and the the this goes back to the authority of Scripture. The the great confidence I have in believing that gospel centrality is true is from Jesus Himself. In John chapter five, He says. You search the scriptures because you think in them you find life, but it's they that bear witness about me. So, and then if in the context, he mentioned, and then same with Luke 24, um, you see Jesus mentioning every genre of scripture from the Old Testament saying, these are about me. So it's not where's Waldo, but it's not terribly far off sometimes either. Right. Because Jesus says it's about him. And, and again, n- not that GCF has the corner on no. this insight. No. Yet, um, sadly, there are churches out there that that are that are gospel committed. Mm, they they will mm-hmm. defend the gospel all day, which we're thankful for. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they are not committed to preaching Christ from all of Scripture every Sunday. They're not committed to singing gospel-centered songs. Uh, they're not com- committed to their counseling ministry, their small group ministry, their discipleship group ministry, really revolving around the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and again, we're thankful for churches that that will defend the gospel with us, mm-hmm. but that's not enough. We we think that gospel centrality means that every ministry of this church uh, needs to be motivated by, driven by, mm-hmm. empowered by the personal work of Jesus Christ, and that and thankfully that insight. Is becoming more and more popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's been a wonderful renaissance of gospel centrality in the last twenty years, due to the works of men like Gerhardus Voss and Martin Lloyd Jones, Brian mm-hmm. Chapel, and many many others. Mm-hmm. So we, we live in a good time uh, where this is being rediscovered and mm-hmm. re- recommitted to. Um, well, let's move on. Uh, Reformed theology, our third theological mm-hmm. distinctive. What in the world does it mean to be committed to Reformed theology? Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at our theological distinctives on the website, I think there is, under Reformed theology, there would be also what I would call Reformation theology, which is what all Protestants believe, which would be the five solas of the Reformation, or let's say all Protestants should believe that. Um, And then within that, and that, of course, is um, Scripture alone, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Now, Reformed theology, depending who you are talking to, can mean different things. <laughs> what does it mean to us? To us, we, we are convinced that Reformed theology means that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. He rules and reigns over every single detail in the universe— including our salvation, who comes and who does not come to faith in Jesus. What about tsunamis and wars? Even tsunamis and wars, even though God is not the author of evil, the Bible is clear on that, 
there is no there there is no reason in scripture to deny that God is not sovereign in some way over that. In fact, I was just teaching my ninth grade Bible class and we read Daniel chapter one. And it says that God gave Judah, King Jehoiakim, into the hands of of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then God gave Daniel favor with the chief eunuch and gave Daniel health. And so God is in control of the nations, which involve wars, which involve horrible acts that are committed during wars, including invasions and captivities and slavery, and also in charge of the health of our bodies and whether people like us or not. And now that's God uses human decisions that are not in any way felt as compelled to direct his purposes. But there is, I, I don't know if, there's no escaping that from Scripture in my mind, and there's no comfort if we do escape it. Right. Um, yeah, so, so God is sovereign over every detail of life. That's called meticulous providence. Mm-hmm. We also uh, affirm what's called unconditional election. Mm-hmm. God chooses us not based on our choice of him, but based on his sheer mercy and grace. I, I was reading two days ago in Joel Beakey's Systematic Theology, Volume 1. It's a four-volume work, which is a, a fantastic work of theology, by the way. And I was reading a section on God's decrees. And, and, and I remembered... This is such good news. Mm. It's such good news that that God in eternity past planned every single mm-hmm. detail of our lives. And he's working all those details for our good and his glory. Mm-hmm. And and I the alternative to this, as you just alluded to, is that somehow God is not in control. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Satan's in control? That how is that better news than a God who is sovereign who is able to work all the bad mm-hmm. things? our good and his glory. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty, rightly understood, brings tremendous mm-hmm. comfort to the believer. Yeah, and that's not to say there aren't challenges. Right. But I I always picture it as you're sitting on a branch, and you're if you're going to say that God is not sovereign, you're cutting yourself off from the branch. So you're free. You, you think you're making yourself free, but you're just making yourself free enough to fall. Yeah. And with no comfort and to hurt yourself. And we could say so much more about mm-hmm. this. We could talk about free will mm-hmm. um, and Arminianism and, and all of the questions that come up on the subject, which we're not going to do right now. But Brett, what are, what are one or two good books you'd recommend to study this issue of, of Reformed theology more mm. besides Romans chapter 9? Yeah, Romans chapter 9. On, um, you know, I love Anthony Hukuma's book, book, Saved by Grace, uh, as far as the way this the the whole doctrine of salvation works together, um, yeah. I, I Wayne Grudem's systematic theology is a great first step into exploring God's sovereignty. Um, yeah, any most most quote unquote reformed systematic theologies, I end up getting these chapters and I read them and they end up being comforted. Whether it's Robert Raymond's or uh, Michael Horton's or um, you know, fill in the blank. I, I would also recommend the superb book, 40 Questions. Oh, on, it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Is it on Calvinism or Reformed it's on, theology? It's on Calvinism. Yeah. He, he's, in fact, he would... That, that that's, book, that's my new go-to. I agree. On this subject. 40, yeah, I just 40 read Questions on Calvinism by... Wright. 
Yes. Which right is it? Chris, uh, not Chris Wright. Sean? It's not yeah, Sean. Sean Wright. Is it Sean Wright? From Southern Seminary. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got to move on. We, we have just a few minutes left here. Uh, we are committed to complementarity. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Amen. What does that mean, Brett? That men and women are equally made in God's image, worthy of value, who have souls that apparently, according to Jesus, are more valuable than the whole world. Because you could gain the whole world and it'd still be a bad trade for your soul. Um, and yet those men and women are different in function in two significant areas. And that is leadership in the home and leadership in the church, which are uh, delegated to men. And that, that means that women, wives are meant to submit to their husbands. And within the context of a local church, teaching and preaching uh, and, exer- and exercising of authority are limited to men who hold the office of elder. Uh, so, yeah, that is, that's probably more controversial now than Reformed theology. In Although what's interesting about this is that every denomination in church history affirmed this until probably 40 or 50 years ago. Although, although you could say that the, the Foursquare... I was going to say, Assemblies was, of God... Which was started by mm, a woman, yeah. Amy Silver McPherson, back in the 20s. Yeah. That's the one exception. But before the 20th century, every denomination in church history taught this position mm-hmm. because the Bible is very, very yeah. clear on this from Genesis 1, yeah. Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, Galatians 3, uh, that there's equality of value but difference in function. And, and I think often Christians are embarrassed by this teaching. Yeah. Um, but this God has made us different to mm-hmm. complement one another, and mm-hmm. that's wonderful, and we should celebrate this not be embarrassed about it, celebrate it, rejoice in it. And more and more and more as our culture is incredibly confused yeah. on these issues of gender and sexuality. Uh, we have a model mm-hmm. in the Bible that produces joy and life mm-hmm. and human flourishing. And so we, we think this is very important. It's, it's not as important as the Trinity no. or the virgin birth or the resurrection of Christ. But nonetheless, uh, it is important because it does have lots of implications for how families function and how the church functions. And I think, and I know these people are out there. I know there are egalitarians who are the people that would disagree with complementarians. I know that there are egalitarians out there who hold tenaciously to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, but I have not encountered them personally. I have not had a conversation with an egalitarian that sooner or later doesn't, when it boils down to, it's like, well, Paul, we're not even sure that verse was originally in 1 Corinthians. Or I don't think Paul really actually meant that. And so the, so it goes back to that first point at almost every time in every conversation I've had over this uh, topic, because you're, as you said, Dave, scripture is so clear on this. And it's, it's a, it's a historical fact that's, not disputed, that every denomination in the 20th century that initially caved on this issue has now caved on the homosexual issue. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. And it's because it's a very similar hermeneutic it is, that denies yep. the authority of Scripture. Now, is that a necessary move? No. Mm-hmm. Does every egalitarian make that move? No, fortunately not. Praise the Lord, yeah. But it is a fact mm-hmm. that every denomination who be, who compromised on this issue 40 years ago, PCUSA, ELCA, American Baptist, et cetera, mm-hmm. they've, all, they've all eventually compromised on the gay issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's no coincidence. All right, m- moving on to uh, the next one. We're committed to the local church. 
so is that right, wouldn't, before wouldn't, the wouldn't, spiritual gifts? Day? Wouldn't uh, oh, did I skip one? Oh, I skipped one. We are committed to continuationist pneumatology. Mm-hmm. That's a mouthful. Dude. That is what a mouthful. in the world does that mean? I hear people talking about that using that language all the time on the streets. No, um, maybe in Chihuahua. No, no, I've never heard anybody on the streets talking about continuationist pneumatology. Uh, yeah, so continuationist meaning that things continue, pneuma from the word for breath and spirit. So the continuing work of the spirit, we would say that all the gifts of the spirit that we see in scripture continue. There, we are not cessationists, which teach that some gifts, the miraculous sign gifts, have ceased. Uh, with the closing of the canon, even though many of the people we love and respect would disagree with us on that. I don't see any evidence of that. And again, for me, it's philosophically, I could become a cessationist, but it becomes the authority of scripture for me again. So I'm, I end up being a continuationist. So we believe that there are Christians in this world that have the gifts of speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and prophesying and words of wisdom and words of knowledge and healing. Um, now, how that works at GCF is a bigger question for me um, that I have not figured out what that looks like, but I am convinced that it's scriptural and that it's true. And, and this one actually has become less controversial. It has, yes. So 50 years ago, there were a lot of folks in our camp, mm-hmm. the conservative evangelical reformed camp, who would have been cessationists. Yes, but because of the work of men like D.A. Carson, Wayne Grudem, and Sam Storms, and many mm-hmm. other scholars, um, it's it's hard, not impossible, but hard to find scholars today mm-hmm. that are cessationists because the arguments have been destroyed mm-hmm. by several respectable conservative evangelical scholars. So uh, this one is not as controversial as it may have been no. 30 or 40 years ago. Let's let's move on. Um, two left. We've got a few minutes left. Two minutes left. A minute on each one. Oh, more than that. We have. Let's do an hour on each one, Brett. Or not? Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> number six. Dinner. We are committed to the local church. Yeah. Isn't everyone? No. <laughs> Explain. No, we think the local church is God's plan for advancing His kingdom. There's some mystery in how the church and the kingdom are not quite identical, but there's significant overlaps with church uh, test to the kingdom and so forth. But the local church is an outpost of God's eternal kingdom, his universal church. And that means that we as Christians should build our lives around the local church. Jesus died not for random people, but for specific people. He knew all of Brett Sweet's sins and died for Brett Sweet. And if he knew all the specific sins of Joe member at that church, then I should care for that particular person as well and actually know them. And so in the local church, we see the place where you can be an obedient Christian, where you can actually hear the preaching of God's word week in and week out, where you can actually love your neighbor and not just say you love them and then walk away when things get hard, which is still a challenge in our church. Um, uh, a place where church discipline is is in existence along with the practice of baptism in the Lord's Supper. So um, the local church is where it's at. It is the hottest show in town 
for the Holy Spirit. You, so, yeah. So Charles Spurgeon said that the, the local church is the dearest place on mm-hmm. earth. Yeah. And that's because, as, as you're saying, the, the local church is this little outpost of the future coming kingdom. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little outpost of heaven where God's spirit is the most manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the local church is, is the temple of God mm-hmm. where God's presence dwells. Uh, it's where the, the the gospel is preached. The kingdoms are, or the keys of the kingdom are used to open and close the doors of the kingdom through membership and discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of folks would affirm this, especially in our in our churches. But the question is, are they really building their lives yeah. around mm-hmm. this central reality? And our passion is that people would build their lives around the church because this mm-hmm. is the main thing that God is doing right now in the yeah. world is he's building mm-hmm. his church. And getting real practical, uh, this means that we as Christians have the great privilege of making sacrifices to be here on Sunday, mm-hmm. to show up to small group, to give our resources. Um, the local church will endure forever, but your kid's softball will not. And and I, man, I love sports mm-hmm. like you do i do like you sports. love golf yeah i don't play as much as i once did, um, yeah. mm-hmm. i think we would both agree that sports are great we should be involved in sports uh but but there is this massive idol of sports in our culture right now that does keep a lot of the saints away from church and and we really want to encourage folks because of what the church is to build their lives around the church which means saying no to activities that interfere with church on a regular basis. It's obviously yeah. okay to miss every once in a while. Yeah. But probably not more than a handful of times a year. Nor- I mean, in the Northwest, if it's not sports, it's usually some other outdoor activity. Right. Whether it's camping or hunting, which I would, I would, if I could hunt, I'd, if I had to give up everything else in order to deer hunt, I would, with the exception of the local church and my family. Like I would, I would never play golf again if I could hunt enough to make up for that or whatever. But, and, um, but that cannot be where God is going to work all the time because the Holy Spirit is not at work in the outdoors the same way he is in God's people. Right. Uh, and so, it's a, it's a huge challenge in our culture, in our co- particular context in Spokane. So I, I was, um, we're reading as elders, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, fourth mm-hmm. edition, uh, which is a fantastic book. And the author made the point that when you go back and look at American Baptists in the 19th century, the number one most common church disciplinable offense was, remember this from the reading? I don't remember it, but I would guess based on where you're leading me. What? Probably lack of attendance. Lack of attendance. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I think today people would freak out if we even alluded to the fact that you could be disciplined for lack of attendance. Mm-hmm. But we have to ask the question, what's changed, the Bible or our culture? Yeah. And it's our culture. So mm-hmm. 200 years ago, every Christian would have gasped if someone was going to miss church for 10 weeks in a row due to softball or right. tennis or golf yeah. or hunting or the lake. Yeah. Um, so the the Bible makes it very clear, uh, Hebrews 10, 23 to 24, that we should not forsake the assembly of the believers. So all we're trying to say with this value is yeah. we, we really, really, really want people to get a vision for the centrality of the church, giving to it, serving in it, building their lives around it, even though it's imperfect, 
um, it, it is the dearest place on earth. Yeah. And, and, and we're never, ever, ever going to regret on the day of judgment yeah. or on our deathbed that we served too much or gave too much or were too involved mm-hmm. in our church or that we chose to miss that sporting event to go to church. We're never going to regret that. It's crazy when you think about it, the the idea that that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus by the Holy Spirit is present where two or three are gathered in his name. And, and, that, and the context of that is actually church discipline. Church discipline right. but, but to think that every Sunday Jesus is at church and we would be like, meh, you know, I think. But Brett, isn't he everywhere present? He is by his divinity, but there is there is a special presence in, uh, that is happening when the living stones gather. Amen. That and first, first and Peter I, two. And I don't know how to ex- explain all the ins and outs of this, but it's true. And I think there is uh, it's for us to so lightly say, "Well, Jesus is going to be at church today," but I I think I'll sleep in. That's a that could be a real indictment of what is going on in our hearts. The the family I grew up in, I, I don't ever remember in 18 years of my childhood missing church. You know, it's ever like uh, sports. No way. Um, vacation maybe once or twice, Yeah, but that was just normal. Yeah. I, I heard a, in a premarital counseling book I read, I thought this was a good goal for people. Obviously, we got little kids; they get sick a lot. We get that, but but they basically said a goal to be at church. You, you should set the goal or the plan to be at church forty eight weeks a year. Mm-hmm. Like two weeks you're on vacation, two weeks you're sick. Like if you're grown ups, and and so that that I think is a great ideal. Um, and yeah, I meet people on Sunday mornings that are like that walk in and obviously they don't stick around, but they're like, yeah, we were actually planning on going to another church today, but we just saw the sign and pulled in. And I'm like, cool. Like, we're really glad you're here. We really hope you stay. But the, the, the thought in my mind that you could be a Christian and be so just hop around. Yeah. Kind of laissez faire. Like, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure that's, I I am, I am sure that will not lead to long-term good spiritual health. And this particular value, and we'll, we'll move on. We're on a soapbox right now, aren't we, Brad? Although it's kind of a fun soapbox to be on. It's it's, not the funnest, but it's it's a biblical soapbox. Um, Part of this value is the importance of church membership Mm -hmm. um, and church discipline um, and serving in the church giving to the church. Yeah. We're, we're just kind of assuming that, which we can't go into right yeah. now. But I would recommend reading Deborah's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, mm-hmm. fourth edition. It's very, very good. Which brings us to the last theological distinctive, and that is we are committed to elder governance. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that so important, Brett? Because the the model we see in the New Testament is churches being led by multiple male elders. We don't see a single pastor um single guy, for lack of a better term, being the guy of the church who's ruling the church. Um, we see multiple elders working together to shepherd God's flock, hold one another accountable, hold uh, the church accountable to shepherd them by teaching them and loving them and caring for them and counseling them and using scripture and the gospel and all of that. And so, man, we we need elders. We pray earnestly that God would raise up laborers for the harvest. And the, those laborers are going to be elders who help train other laborers 
equip saints for the work of the ministry. Mm-hmm. And and is it is a plurality of male elders in a church? Is that rare? You think? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. I'm my wife calls me a church stalker. Like I get on church websites and just like learn about churches. I. That's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't think it's it's definitely not an assumption that every church has embraced. Yeah. And and we're assuming that an elder is a shepherd, is a pastor, yep. is an overseer, is a bishop. Those five words are used synonymously in the New Testament. And and our elders are not just decision makers. Nope. They're not just successful businessmen that are good at governing and yeah. and using Robert's rules of orders. Uh, but no, we, we are definitely not that. Yeah. <laughs> we use Bob's rules, oh, yeah, modified, yeah. kind of. Um, but but we, we really believe that, that elders need to be men who love the sheep, who want to be with the sheep, who care about the sheep, who are interested in, in taking up their crosses to mm-hmm. serve the sheep, teach the sheep, guide the sheep, protect the sheep. So um, biblical elders are more than just decision makers. They are shepherds. They are pastors. And so at GCF North, uh, we have several elders. Central has, you guys have three right now. Three. Mm-hmm. You'd love more. Mm-hmm. And, and, and each elder has the same amount of authority. So it's not like Brett gets three votes on his elder board. No. He gets one vote. Uh, and that's good and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we move via consensus. So consensus by a uh, 70% majority when the combined elder board meets. So, um, yeah, biblical eldership, unfortunately, is rare. And wise elders will also uh, seek to uh, gather input from the congregation Mm -hmm. before making decisions. It's a huge privilege to be shepherds under our chief shepherd, Jesus, for his people. They're always his people. And it's a huge responsibility, and it is a burden. Like the 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 burdens that elders carry, because they're in the church business, they know what's going on in people's lives. <clears throat> is not if all you want is power and influence, being a church elder is not the role for you. If you want to care for people and love people when it's hard, then maybe you're an elder. Maybe you're on the right path. Um, but it's such a joy to do that for Jesus' sake. Well, that's a great note to end on. Uh, Brett, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for listening to Flock Talk, a ministry of GCF North. GCF North exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. To learn more, go to our website, gcfnorthspokane.org. <laughs>